You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. This Wall Talk is delivered by Alicia Kearns. Alicia is a counter-terrorism expert and is currently directing CT counter-disinformation and hybrid warfare interventions in Lebanon, Morocco, and the Western Balkans. During her career, Alicia has worked for the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office, where she led UK government interventions in Syria and Iraq, and advised over 70 governments on how to defeat the terrorist group Daesh, insurgent groups, and to counter malign state disinformation efforts. This included countering Russian disinformation in Syria, attending the UN-led peace talks on Syria, and deployments to Iraq, Kuwait, and Ukraine. Alicia also worked for the UK Ministry of Defence and Ministry of Justice. In this war talk, Alicia presents to us on the topic of weaponized truth and the democratization of information. Uh, evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming along. I hope uh, this evening's talk is interesting. If not, I'm sure you'll tell me in the Q&A. Uh, so, the democratization of information warfare. Governments globally are grappling with the changing nature of influence. And for me, that comes down to the democratization of information as the next stage in the development of hybrid warfare. The information age, and specifically social media, has completely changed the battle space, it's changed the battle rhythms, and skirmishes now take place in transient online uh, communities, often without a single word being spoken aloud. Now, the information age gifts governments, militaries, but also our enemies, with the ability to enter the minds of a populace at such speed, to go across an ecosystem with little effort, little expertise, and little cost, but to massive effect at times. But whilst much has changed, I would argue the battle is still being fought over essentially the same thing, truth. And the greatest capital that is being traded between nation states, between our enemies and ourselves, is the concept of truth. Truth has become the most potent weapon. It's what terrorists claim to offer to their followers. It's the weapon that malign states deploy to achieve their strategic intent. I would argue that weaponized information is as effective if not more effective than traditional diplomacy or even kinetic activity. But of course that depends on your desired effect. Because truth is how we inspire individuals to carry out into acts, to help us achieve our goals. And it goes to the heart of what we as individuals believe, our norms and values and the actions we decide to take. So the primary occupation of actors in hybrid warfare is ensuring their accepted truth is triumphant. And I add the word accepted because what the truth is, or arguably always has been, is very much uh, essentially what we're countenancing is the accepted truth. But that's a very separate conversation. And for me, there are a number of reasons why truth has become the battlefield. And I wanted to pull out just a few of them for you. So the first is loss of trust in the media. We've seen a gradual rejection of narrative control and groupthink. And this began with the advent of greater transparency about our governments, the business world, and specifically the media. What it's brought about is awareness amongst the masses of how much control and information previously sat in the hands of so few, and the egregious behavior of some in power and how media serve those interests. And so what I think we've seen as a result is individuals seeking out views that they find attractive or that reinforce their existing worldviews, a normative framework they can embrace without any challenge. And often these are, world, these are views that would be rejected by their local real world communities. And that's what the internet does. It allows us to seek out those who hold the same views as us and therefore to reinforce them and legitimize them. And this legitimization, unfortunately, in turn, pushes people even further from mainstream media. 
resulting in echo chambers where the propagation of false narratives as part of hybrid warfare is a much easier task. The next way is poor government engagement. For centuries, governments and militaries have completely infantilized the public. We've said to them, you don't need to understand national security. You don't need to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. Just trust us. We've got your best interests at heart. We're looking after you. We're supporting you. But unfortunately, all that does is creates a vacuum and it allows distrust to ferment when we have our enemies spreading conspiracy theories and disinformation. What happened in the past was it took days to understand the facts of a matter. So, for example, um, navalmen being taken hostage in Ukraine. What would happen in the past is we would wait for the BBC to deploy a correspondent. Then we'd tune into the radio every day and read the newspapers, hoping for the analysis and understanding of what was happening. But nowadays, people go online and they try and find the most authentic, the most local voice, someone who just happens to be in the right port, right next to where the Ukrainian soldiers were taken hostage, or someone who happens to be in Mosul and Raqqa. And the thing about that is that it is a good thing that the voices available to us have massively diversified because we do have access to more authentic and more meaningful voices. But it also means that we rely on those because we're so desperate to find the most accurate, the most authentic, that may not actually be what they appear to be. The next way in which things have changed is the cost and ease of accessing information or the truth. So in the past, if we were carrying out information operations, we need to perhaps control of a national broadcaster, carrier pigeons, CDs, telegrams, or even messages hidden in bread loaves or graffiti. Now, those might be all things we still continue to do and we need to use, but they're all physical techniques that are labor-intensive and leave a considerable trail of evidence. And nowadays, all you need is phone signal. And that gives great opportunity not only to us, but more importantly, to malign enemies, to our individuals, who, and also to their potential useful idiots. They can lie in wait, waiting for a vulnerable individual to make contact, and then give them an immediate response and the emotional reward of such an immediate response, which in turn entrenches their truth. Especially when you compare that to how we as government respond. We don't wait around waiting for people to ask questions and come to us. And we definitely don't respond with an immediate response. And we don't give people that return or reward or connection from getting a response. And the final thing is the abund overwhelming abundance of information. Now, the digital age offers limitless information and vast perspective sources and information. And that is a good thing. But there are some who undoubtedly experience heightened uncertainty, a lack of trust in information itself, in themselves, and even their own ability to decipher information and make a good decision. The sociologist um, Giddens would call this ontological security. And in this state, individuals desperately seek to arm themselves against uncertainty, to get information that makes them feel more certain and, and secure. Ultimately, what that demonstrates is an acute need for clarity and certainty as reassurance. And that's what we see in, in individuals who are often radicalized, or individuals who are, uh, shall we say, keen distributors of disinformation. Because that's what terrorist narratives and disinformation offers, a cog cognitive closure, a shortcut to a conclusion where you don't have to challenge your own thinking, you don't have to deploy any critical thinking skills, and you already feel safe and warm in what you're being told because it fits with a shortcut you already have entirely. The average terror narrative can be undermined through debate and deconstruction, but vulnerable individuals are not seeking debate. They want dogmatic, uncompromising, and binary worldviews that gives them security deep inside. So that's the context in which we're working. But I also want to talk, um, change how we talk about information warfare, because I don't think we need to talk about information warfare. Instead, we should just talk about hybrid warfare, 
because at its heart, as I said, lies truth. And truth is ultimately about the information in our ecosystem and that we take in. In these circumstances, malign governments and terror groups are offering themselves up as the defenders of truth, attempting to liberate communities and individuals from the suspicious and corrupt narratives that we as governments or militaries have somebody entrapped them within. So information is the most cost-effective and highly prized weapon in hybrid warfare. But whilst the battle for truth is undoubtedly not new, there has been a fundamental shift, I would argue, in the digital age, and that's the soldiers. The soldiers are no longer states, the media, or well-financed terror or organized crime groups. We are all agents of influence. We have all become the soldiers. And this is the biggest challenge that we face as information operators, but also the biggest opportunity. The dynamics of warfare have shifted so that even smally resourced niche organizations in the most uh, remote parts of the world can force project internationally. Members of the public, traditional combatants, however, now have the ability to become arbiters of truth. We are living through mass exports of narrative control to the masses. And across the world, I think individuals have more or less, to a greater extent, embraced their position as these arbiters of information. Because all of us in the room are producers of content. All of us probably have social media uh, channels where we create content on a daily basis. And yet, despite the fact that the whole public and all around the world people are daily creating content, we as information operators are not harnessing the public and getting them to create the content we need to help us. So in terms of how we tackle the democratization of hybrid warfare, having hopefully set a context, I'm going to talk through five ways in which I think military communicators can further and effectively tackle malign forces in the digital age. Obviously, these are all unclassified, and I recognize we have a mixed audience, um, so I, hopefully they're all um, interesting. The first is quick reaction narrative teams. In the immediate aftermath of a terror attack, or indeed attack such as that on the Skripals, it is a peak recruiting period for fanboys, supporters, conspiracy theorists, and useful idiots, as well as the spreading of disinformation with or without intent. So what we will find is in the aftermath, people will go online and they will search for information about who carried out the attack. Why do they carry it out? What organization are they affiliated to? What's, who are they pledging their allegiance to? What's their rationale for carrying out this action? So what's happening is this is an information-seeking period where individuals are essentially hand-raising and psychologically saying, I'm here, give me information, come to me, give me information that I need. And this is an ideal time for extremists to identify potential recruits and attempt to radicalize them. And that is what they're doing. We see in the aftermath of attacks that there are terrorist groups sitting online waiting for people to pose questions as open as, as a Sunni, should I feel under threat? Is the British government against me? Did MI6 actually radicalize Jihadi John? I mean, who's responsible for this? These are genuine questions people are asking. And just that single comment allows a terrorist to recognize that this is someone who is cognitively open to having a conversation that could lead them down the path that we don't want them to go down. It's also when an emotional need will be met, whether that's for security, whether that's for certainty, and definitely a need for reassurance. Now, I believe that the military can pre-prepare materials to allow us to respond in the immediate aftermath of events. And I don't mean two days later, I don't mean eight hours later, we have to treat information the same way as we would any other threat. We need quick reaction forces because very few specifics are required. Materials can go out through pre-existing official channels if we first move from broadcast to engage and unofficial channels can be used to go on and have the conversations we need. 
Now, ideally, you'd even have a psychologist sat with these quick reaction teams, recognizing how much of a threat someone faces or whether someone needs to be flagged up to other forces. The key thing is move, moving to that place of meaningful discussion with individuals. We have to be able to be activated in an emergency and they need to be able to move quickly. And I recognize that some militaries will be fearful of this. You know, individuals undertaking conversations on our behalf. You know, we need to give them authority to have conversations. Why would we ever do that? They will balk at giving sufficient authority. They'll worry about what they could say, how they might say it, and how it could be interpreted by the Sun newspaper, let alone the individual on the ground. But timely engagement with individuals, reaching out for information about the motives of uh, state actors or terrorist groups can dissuade them from supporting the enemy force. They can dissuade them from having a conversation with a force we don't want them to be having. And it can also stop them from adopting sympathy, which whilst in the immediate might not seem that big a concern, in the long term, sympathy can evolve to something far more concerning. So quick reaction teams, I believe, would make a big difference um, in terms of countering not only disinformation, but also potential recruitment. The next is native narratives. If we look at most counter threat campaigns that we run, they are focused on defensively countering our enemies' narratives and tactics. I would say we argue we spend about 90% of our time countering. But if you look at basic military doctrine, it says we should never be on the back foot. We should never be responding to our enemy. So have we allowed ourselves becoming stuck on this back foot? So responding to our enemy's narratives essentially allows us to talk about the topics they want to talk about, the topics they're comfortable setting the scene for. So we need to drag them kicking and screaming into the arenas that we want to talk about, which eviscerate the false claims they make or the twisted interpretations on which their narratives sit. So looking at it from a counter-terrorism perspective, for example, one measure of success has to be moving a terror group's propaganda machine away from pushing out the materials they want. So for example, um, Daesh, um, we all know, and we will all probably never forget that horrific video of the Jordanian pilot being set on fire. Now, what most people don't know is that Daesh pre-filmed multiple times the cage with the fire being set so that they could practice the lighting so they could practice the sound, so they could make sure they had the right lead up, how long they wanted the footage to be, how quickly would the fire engulf the poor individual who's going to be murdered. That is how far their editorial planning went and their practice of their materials. They have editorial schedules. They are planning to push things out, so we must push them off it. So, for example, one of the things we did uh, we're in government was challenging one of Daesh's core narratives, which is we are a state, we provide statehood. If you're not providing water, you're not providing a state and you cannot provide statehood. So we found out from military intelligence very kindly that there was not water in Raqqa. It was being on for maybe max one, two hours a day, sometimes multiple days without water. And so all we did very simply was put out a video that said um, there isn't any water in Raqqa. There isn't any. Our goal wasn't to incense Daesh. It was just to kind of genuinely get out information that they're not doing what they promise. Ten days later, Daesh responded with a video called Water is Abundant in Raqqa. They put it out in multiple languages from every single press office. They had statements going alongside it, social media activity, you name it. Now, some people would say, well, great, you've got you know, them to talk about the fact they did have water and try and prove it. But what we did was we pushed them off their editorial schedule. They would have had other things they wanted to talk about. They might have had another murder they planned to film and push out for all we know. We moved them on to talking about something we wanted them to talk about. But beyond that, they were pushing out materials to people who already followed them, an audience we wouldn't have reached with our video. And if you are told, don't worry, water is abundant in our territories, 
automatically, psychologically, you're going to start thinking, why are you having to tell me there's lots of water? Of course there's water. Why, why are we having to have this conversation? So psychologically, without meaning to, they helped us instill in their audience, who we weren't reaching, a potential question about, is there something we should be worrying about? So ultimately, we have to keep making sure that we can do things like this and we challenge them because although it might seem very facile what we're doing, actually, they inadvertently spread our claims. They inadvertently spread us to their followers and they inadvertently can put questions in the minds of their followers. Now, another big issue when we talk about this and native narratives is that it is commonly accepted that governments are not a credible voice. And this to me is utterly unacceptable. We cannot argue that governments have no credibility when it comes to keeping us safe because they do so every single day. However, the absence and engagement that we've put in place allows that vacuum to take place. The key thing is that as governments, no matter how much we don't have credibility when it comes to some things, we probably shouldn't have um, a MOD Twitter account having a conversation with someone sat in Luton who thinks they should be getting on the next plane to Syria. That's probably not going to be particularly credible. But cognitively, on some cognitive level, there is always a belief in our citizens that a Western democratic government must be telling the truth to some element. They might not believe us entirely, but they probably know that we're probably not lying on every single level. We do have credibility and we continue that credibility by owning the truth and being trusted arbiters of it, by setting out what our narrative is and by relentlessly pushing it to our audiences. And crucially, I think we need to fundamentally rethink how we communicate with the British public because it is absolutely right that on a daily basis, we have a strategic narrative that helps us achieve our strategic intent that explains to the public, the taxpayers who fund our military, what we are doing, why we're doing it and how we're doing it. That's not just because I think we have a duty to do it, but because then if we lay a native narrative proactively where we talk about what we're going to do and why we're doing it, we have got there first of that message. So that when our enemies then come in and say, this is what your government is doing, this is what your military is doing, we've got there first. And the reason why that's important is, um, say your brother's about to walk through the door and I say to you, the next person who walks through the door is going to lie to you. I'm really sorry, um, but I know exactly what they're going to say to you. Even though they're your brother and I don't know them, I have placed the idea in your head that they're going to lie to you. So if we can twist that on its head, where we push out positive narratives about what we're doing, our intent, why we do things, how we justify things, how things operate, we can ultimately push the narratives we want and get there first. Now, it's not going to mean that disinformation never happens, but we can psychologically place the boundary pieces we need that perhaps might just stop someone shifting quite so far um, away from us and being quite so negative about us. The next thing we need to do is have non-securitized engagement. As I said earlier, we have for too long told people they don't need to understand how we do national security. And we need to normalize the holding of conversations around human security issues with the communities we protect. Currently, public debate on security issues, if held at all, largely take place in the context of academics on our kind of programs on TV or through counterterrorism programs such as Prevent. And they're almost exclusively with at-risk audiences or very specialist audiences, for example, perhaps like the ones tonight or the general public on TV where they're very facile. Positing defence discussions and a highly securitised focus is divisive, alienating and counterproductive. And whilst in the past we didn't want to talk about what we were doing and why, now in the era where information abounds at the click of a button, the absence of information from us, or absence of engagement moreover, can come across as aloof or at worst demonstrative of malign intent. 
Now, some people will say that national security continues to be too complicated and continues to be too difficult. But it's vital that we keep the UK public with us, whatever we do, because personal security is an existential preoccupation. And it is these common concerns around human security that ultimately motivate people. So I would like us to normalize conversation with the public, whether it's on social media, or whether it's going into community town halls and explaining why we do things. And for me, that goes to the widest possible concept of military. So explaining that there's always a human in the loop or explaining what our strategic intent is abroad or why we have our boys and girls or men and women, as I should probably say, um, deployed to certain places. So, for example, we set up a Twitter account um, at the foreign office called UK Against Daesh. Um, when it was first set up, the sole goal was to retweet um, all the other multiple government accounts that were talking about um, what we were doing to defeat Daesh. Nobody really wants to just go and sit and re read, retweet some other people. But ultimately, we were able to change the permissions. We got to a place where it wasn't there to de-radicalize people. It was there to allow us to answer the genuine questions the public had for us when fairly worded and not offensive, um, saying to us, why are we doing what we're doing? How many civilian casualties do you have? What are you doing about the finances? How are you tackling them? And we were genuinely not in a one hour slot once a month. We would engage and respond to people's questions. Now, that's not information operations. That's just basic sharing of information with the public to make sure they feel on board with what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because all information we consume has a role to play and they need to be aligned. And I believe that if we engage with, them, with the public in times of declared peace, that can help us in time of crisis. Because if we then need to go to the public and say, trust us, we had to go and do this and we now need you to contribute in whatever way we need to ask, they are more likely to do it and they're less likely to be critical of our militaries if we've engaged with them on an ongoing manner. Now, the, the final way is, uh, well, second to last, is what I talked about earlier, which is the new foot soldiers. So anyone can now be an actor and contribute to hybrid warfare efforts. And so we have to move our analysis that continues to sit with a narrow focus on states and non-state actors to the public as a whole. Because any individual, anyone in this room can create a civil society movement with malign intent or other. They can hack platforms. They can disrupt an individual's life. They can boycott goods and services, create media platforms, leak information or spread mistruths. And it has become absolutely mainstream for all individuals to be content producers. That's why YouTube exists. That's why Snapchat exists. They thrive solely on the ability and interest of individuals to create content. But why would individuals want to help us? Why would they want to get on board with hybrid warfare? The motivation for me rests most likely in the desire, but also the innate need for people to hold and propagate the truth. What we talked about at the start, where people are seeking security. People will create content to share what they believe to be the truth and what they believe to be true because they feel an ontological need to do so. Also, they, have an, they get ownership of action and immediacy of impact in what they are doing. So with agency in so many hands, I think we need to recognize that we need to empower and activate the public to work in our interests. Because ultimately, the period we're entering is the most dangerous phase of hybrid warfare. It completely changes our ability to defeat our enemies. The entrenchment of hybrid warfare essentially, or essentially really it's assimilation to simply war, creates a get out of jail free clause for all our enemies. Because when they lose militarily, for example, when their territories are liberated, as we're seeing with Daesh, they continue to exercise influence through information. And these tactics can be perpetuated with such meager resources, it's, it's going to be impossible to eradicate them. And they will always continue to exist in some form. Therefore, traditional military defeat doesn't pose an existential threat. However, we know they're out there having conversations all the time. 
with all sorts of different people, potentially those who could be radicalized or who are vulnerable, but also just general members of the public or even journalists who they're very happy to tweet and have conversations with. So what we need to do is recognize that we do not have the resources and resources are another question. I've got quite strong views on how much more we could do with what we do have. But um, we need to be nimble enough to embrace the public and empower them to go out and have arguments for us because we cannot be on the front line every day. We cannot be in every single conversation. But if we give people the information I've suggested through non-securitized engagement, if we are open in conversations about why we're doing what we're doing, those people, and that's your neighbors, your brother, your sister, your friends, will have that fight for us online. We don't need to have the fight when they're doing it for us. And an informed public can only strengthen the state of society. Empowering the public means they will become our foot soldiers and they will tackle warped narratives for us without us having to do so. Now, the final way we need to change is embedding information operations into institutional responses. And I think we need to completely rewrite the book. We don't just need to rewrite the book of influence. We need to throw it out the window. Um, if we activate all levers of influence, that is the only way that we will be victorious in the information space. And governments need to adapt to warfare where the desire to control information is redundant. We do not control information. We do our best to influence it and shape it. And there are massive institutional changes required. Few militaries treat information operations as a true specialization. And when they do, it's siloed. It works incomplete um, on its own with no one else, failing to recognize actually what a cabinet minister says in a speech should be st strategically aligned with the graffiti we're putting on a wall to try and encourage a defection. We need to bring forward the arena of influence to the, to the front, from the sidelines of the battlefield, and it needs investment. So we need influence command, or we need an influence division. So in conclusion, the democratization of hybrid warfare has important implications for all of us as information operators. And over the last decade, the democratization of information has given individuals the agency to wrestle control of information away from us. And by us, I mean traditional institutions of power governments and the media. So moving to the next stage of this evolution, it is individuals seeking out the ability for them themselves to liberate control over information, for them to feel that they are the arbiters, that they have rooted out the truth and they themselves are arguing what they believe and know to be true. They are all agents of influence. So we need to embrace that the battlefield has changed. We need to recognize the power of weaponized truth. We need to engage in non-securitized discourse with the public. We need to recruit, inform, and deploy Joe Public as a genuine agent of influence. And we need to invest in information weapon systems. Ultimately, we have to shift to an offensive information footing, and we should be unashamed of our embrace in the opportunities of democratization of information. Influence should no longer be a dirty word, and we should be unapologetic in our use of information operations to defend our nation. This podcast was recorded by Wavell Room in partnership with War Talks. War Talks are a series of talks delivered by experts in their field for the armed forces at Prince Consort's Library in Aldershot. You can find more details via Twitter at War Talks.